So, last time, Debbie, we were talking about the distinction between uh, emotion and feeling. Right. And that we came up with the difference between emotion and feeling is motion. Mm -hmm. Okay. That feeling is just the E, and then the motion is um, uh, the, the kind of the outcome or let us say uh, the motivator or the um, uh, in some uh, ways in psychotherapy, they call it the driver. What is it that drives us? Okay. And now you're asking a question about two words, compassion and um, uh, empathy. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at it, with uh, compassion, uh, just as a word itself, it is good to look at the words because we're going to look at the underlying meaning in just a moment. But the word itself is compassion. Is it um, basically is is Latin, and it means with passion. It basically what compassion means is to join the fight, mm-hmm. to join in the fray to take someone's side and to do it with vigor or with passion. So it has a quality of taking sides. Also, you look at the word sympathy, uh, excuse me, empathy, along with the word sympathy, and you'll see that word uh, uh, empathy, or not empathy, but uh, the pathos. The word is pathos in there, and that uh, 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 the word pathos also has uh, at the bottom. In fact, that's a Greek word. It means basically the same thing as the passion or that movement. Okay. So both empathy and compassion were words that were used to point at something, but the very foundation of the words themselves missed the point. And so what would then the point be? Well, there's another way of looking at this, and that is by looking at actually in the Pali, the word is karuna. That would be normally uh, uh, translated as compassion. Mm -hmm. But when we understand right noble view as right noble view in the regard of karuna, what we begin to see is, oh, we do actually want to see and and uh, ex- experience uh, the pain and suffering of other people and see it directly and see it carefully and see maybe what can be done about it as opposed to merely compassion is just jumping in and joining the fight. And so real karuna is not really compassion in the way that most people would think of compassion in the sense of taking up for uh, the, um, the oppressed. Right. I uh, actually, or trying to fix something that's broken. Right. Right. You got a question? Yes. 
So I basically came up to this because um, so whatever is going on in uh, New York, I've been go I mean, in America, I've been going through all of that. And what I realized is that often empathy uh, leads to a dissatisfaction. It's like I am feeling discomfort on your behalf. So that is kind of a suffering. So exactly. Bingo, jumping into the fight. You did that in mentally. You yeah. saw what was going on. You didn't like it. And so you jumped into the fight mentally. And now you recognize when you do that, it's painful. Yeah, <laughs> right. But then my question is, so when we see that happening, do we just stop? I mean, actually, the thing to do is to investigate what you're feeling right now, kind of knowing the source of that feeling was seeing something on television. But now you've got a feeling going on and that feeling is unpleasant and it doesn't really have to do with the here now of your room, but it does have the quality of, of, of falsely assuming that it's here now because you see it on television where in fact the filming may have been two or three hours old and if you're on YouTube it may be yesterday when it happened so it's certainly not in this present moment that you're seeing what's going on and yet the television gives us the delusion that it's right now but wisdom will say it's not not only that but wisdom will say this is just one camera angle and we cannot see the whole show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And that there is always two sides to every conflict. Mm -hmm. And the better choice, rather than joining this side or that side, the better thing to do is to not join the conflict. But wouldn't, wouldn't that mean I would be living in denial? I mean, denial of what? You see two people fighting. You don't have to say, I deny they're fighting. There they are. One's dressed up like a cop, and the other one has got a brick in his hand. <laughs> yeah. But empathy does have a purpose, right? It, it does lead to altruistic activities. So here's a question for you What do you want to happen? <laughs> it's perfect as it is. <laughs> oh, it is, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you it, sure? It doesn't matter if you want anything, it's not going to happen. So what's the point? Uh, well, the point is, is that people are in a, in a state of bad feeling. Yeah, the point is, is there is Duca and it's being broadcast by the television all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking that, uh, you know, often empathy is regarded as something we should do. And maybe it's more of a discomfort that arises from not feeling enough bad for the other people rather than empathy itself. Yes, but you're still living in an emotional world. Yeah. We haven't come back up to the getting out of the emotional and getting into the weird wisdom to really look at what's going on. Yeah. But one of the things that we can also look at in that realm is, is that you actually started to feel the way that the people who were doing the broadcast television stuff wanted you to feel. Yeah. 
They are in the business of making news. And drama. what ble- drama and what bleeds leads. <laughs> so they're not going to show you the cop sitting down on the street corner uh, holding a girl who's crying. They're going to show you the cop and the guy who were fighting because that's what people get curious about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't know the whole story. Right. But you only know the story that the people who are telling the story want you to know. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And so, in fact, in that way, our compassion is then being ignorantly manipulated, just like anger is ignorantly manipulated, and greed is ignorantly manipulated. How is greed easily manipulated? Well, the politician's going to say, if you elect me and my crowd, we're going to put some legislation in there and you're really going to like it. It's going to make you feel good, put some money in your pocket, give you some good health care, et cetera, like that. Or they're going to manipulate you through your fear, like those people are the wrong color and this country belongs to us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Identification. And that that one point that I just made, even though I didn't magnify it, that point sells in America. (laughs) Yep. And that's the the sales job that Donald Trump is selling. He's selling that this place belongs to us. Let's make America great again by taking away from them people who are the wrong color who used to have it. And, and basically what we're talking about is Donald Trump is able to manipulate people through their bad feelings of fear that are based in racism and those people over there are dangerous. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, hey, folks, let's cooperate and get together. That really doesn't appeal to anyone strong enough to get any votes out of it. Everybody will say, yeah, we should all get along. <laughs> but people get stirred up to go vote and so it's easier to stir people up by getting them angry okay and so that's that may be what people get stirred up about one side or the other uh that some people get stirred up in seeing what you saw on tv some people get angry at the cop and some get people get angry at the guy who threw the brick that's when it's good journalism everybody's pissed off yeah. Okay. So let's look at more real compassion that is not driven by media. Because there are times, and in fact, if you're going to be the excellent psychotherapist that I intend for you to be, there will be lots of time when compassion will be very useful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If we're going to use that word compassion, and like I said, what we're really shooting at, those words don't really fit from their ancestry, but we're stuck with them. There's not really, I mean, we've got to use the word compassion because I don't have another word for it. <laughs> yes, I do. What's Karuna. It just- Karuna. Yeah. By the way, your, your face lit up when I said that word, so you may have heard it before somewhere. 
Yeah, Karuna is uh, a Bengali word. It's basically a Sanskrit word. So we have a Bengali version of it, which means uh, Karuna would be kindness. Okay. But you see, that's not compassion. Yeah. Right. It is, in fact, more kindness. But in that regard, Mudita and Metta, or excuse me, Karuna and, Mud and Metta, are very, very similar together. They both mean kindness. They both mean friendliness. Mm -hmm. And that we can see the distinction of when we say, um, and I, <laughs> I, I use this term, because I have seen it used in so many different retreats, they'll have a meta meditation where everybody sits around at least thinking, if not singing out, may all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May yeah. all beings be free from suffering. May all blah, 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 you know. And um, the issue or the problem with doing that is, is that it's actually creating a hope for a better future. Yeah. What we actually need is uh, not hope for a better future, but let's make right now better. And one of the ways of making right now better is to have other friends join in the play, join in the fun. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and so rather than uh, saying, may all of those people who are out there somewhere that are all in suffering and pain, may they feel better, a much better way of looking at it is, hey guys, come join the party. Yeah. You don't have to be out there suffering. The, the other problem with the idea normally in the West of being compassionate or empathetic is because someone else is suffering because of something else, a third party. For instance, the guy with the brick is suffering because the, the cop is there. And the, and the cop is suffering because the guy with the brick is there. Yeah. Right. But in our own understanding of our own mind, we recognize, no, sometimes I'm a cop and sometimes I'm with a brick. Right. I play both sides of that fence and not only that, but the cop's going to feel bad whether the guy with the brick is there or not. And the guy mm -hmm. with the brick is going to feel bad whether the cop is there or not, that each person manufactures their own suffering. Right. Now that's wisdom. To become to see that, our compassion has to be addressed with wisdom. And that wisdom is, is that everybody's creating their own suffering. So when you join the fight, all you're doing is just adding new suffering. And that's what we mean by compassion, is taking up for someone else. And all we're doing is joining the fight. Now we may in fact change the outcome of the fight but we're generally not going to change how people feel very well. Yeah. But the intention actually is to begin to change people's feelings. If you can see that people are suffering and that they are causing their own suffering, then wouldn't it be wise for us then to invite them out of the suffering that they themselves are creating for themselves 
rather than joining in their misery uh, uh, delusion that it's the other guy who is making them suffer. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do we, like, how do we distinguish uh, uh, empathy and compassion when it arises in our mind? Is it like... Uh, how do, the answer is, reasoning. how do you feel? Sorry? How do you feel? When compassion arises in your mind, how do you feel? Right. So it, it is not going to have that uh, f uh, sensation of discomfort or dissatisfaction. Well... Most of the time, for most people, it does have a feeling of when I see that that kid is getting picked on, I don't like it. I have a feeling inside of I'm not, I don't like it. And then I have the idea, oh, my feeling of not liking arose because I saw what that one was doing to the kid. Therefore, if I go and stop it, I will feel better. That's what most compassion is. They join the fight so that they can turn the battle in the direction they want it to so that they themselves could feel better. That's when someone has ordinary compassion. Mm -hmm. When I see those two fighting, regardless of which one I think should be up and which one is down is not the point. The point is I see them fighting and I don't like it. And so I want to stop what they're doing so I will feel better. Right. We can also then add another new word in there and make it look really petty and really dirty by using the word pity. When the old rich woman throws a dollar into the hat of the musician hoping that he will stop playing while she haughtily walks away. Yeah. Okay. She doesn't really want to help him. She just wants him to not bother her. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the worst of it. But at our heart, that's how we all are doing it anyway. We want to get in there and do something about it to make our own self feel better. Hmm. So can we now uh, start investigating a kind of compassion that is useful, valuable, and wholesome, but there is no bad feelings of self involved with it. That there is, in fact, a void way of being compassionate. Right. Okay, so we just allow the experiences to be whatever they are. Well, the important thing, though, is that we have to be able to investigate and see the suffering. Mm -hmm. It's really important to really see that first noble truth when we're investigating and working around other people. Right. That we can see them suffering. And not only that, but many times we can see the source of their suffering. This is what a good psychotherapist is going to do. They're going to see the person suffering. They're going to figure out what it is that's getting that, that's keeping that suffering uh, motivational going, mm -hmm. and then figure out some sort of intervention so that they can take that the person out of that into the third noble truth of being happy and at ease for a moment, or maybe 
get the problem mentally solved. But right. I'm not sure the psychotherapist wants that because if you solve their problem, they'll leave <laughs> and don't, don't come back and pay anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to go to jail all the time. People are going to be mad at me. What was that? You're going to go to jail. Yeah, because hear... other psychotherapists are going to be, this person is just getting, like, stealing all our jobs. So just let's just. <laughs> oh, I see what you're talking about. Right. You're going to put all of the psychologists at Bristol right out of business. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a noble profession. I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in in fact, then, if we can come to uh, seeing the world as it really is, but we do not pr fall prey to it the way that we have been all along. In other words, if we can get secluded enough to get our own mind straightened out so that we can be free from the hindrances as they arise in the mind. Now we can go and be around other people so that when we see hindrances arising in their mind, we can say the same thing. Aha, I see that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can see you suffering. I can see you making yourself suffer. I used to do that. In fact, it was only an hour ago when the last time I did. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> okay, so this is now a new kind of compassion. This is closer to that kindness, to be, be becoming kind to people because you're not stuck in the feeling levels that they want you to join them in. Everyone that you will ever have compassion for will try to show you how much they need your compassion. They'll really work at trying to convince you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And if they do, then they've caught you. Yep. They've got you. <laughs> now you're stuck in it. Now you got to feel the way that they feel. Mm -hmm. This this happens on all kinds of levels. I mean, we can have the, the same thing, though we wouldn't want to call it compassion. But when someone is outrageously angry, say at the bank, they want everybody in the room to be angry at at least that bank, if not banks in general. <laughs> <laughs> because that helps them justify their anger. Okay, well, when people are in that victim's position that right. we're looking at and say, this, is a, this one is subject to my compassion, well, that's the position that the guy holds. So actually, when you have compassion for him, you are actually supporting his pathology. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I said that already, but it didn't quite slap you the way that I just did when I said that you joined the fight. Yeah. When we join yeah. the fight, that's in fact what we're doing is to say your fight is justified and I support you in your pathology of fighting right now. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh -huh. So we're supporting people in their pathology when we allow them to use it to manipulate because uh, being in a one-down position, looking for a helper is a very powerful position to be in. Why? Because there's a lot of fools out there that wear the hat label, I'm a helper. 
about half of the psychologists wear that hat. I'm <laughs> yeah. a professional helper. And it's the professional helpers that are the one that gets sucked right in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We don't smoke and drink the most. So. So. If we're going to practice this uh, compassion thing the way that the Buddha would talk about, we will now look at it from the sense of kindness and the sense of seeing what's going on, the sense of understanding the suffering because we have been there, done that, but we are not there now doing that now. Right. Now that we have that, that means that at this level of your uh, Anapanasati practice, you are in fact capable, even in this case, able to manage the way you feel. You can feel the way you want to feel. Now, right. let me say it like this then. What kind of feeling system would you want to have if your intention is to cheer this guy up who is pleading for your compassion? How can you get him out of his suffering? Can you repeat the question once more? Yes. What uh, if we see this guy uh, in a state of uh, the suffering yeah. and that our intention is to get him, uh, at least in this moment, out of his suffering? Because if we can't get him out of his suffering right now, we don't have no choice of Tuesday next week. Yeah. But so, if we can get him out of his suffering right now, what kind of feeling system would you want to have that would invite him out of his suffering? Insight as to why is he suffering? Is it because he is living Maybe in Maybe it doesn't even matter why he's suffering. In fact, we've already got all the insight that we need by looking at uh, uh, greed, ill-willed, and delusion. We've got already enough of the second noble truth to know why he's uh, in the suffering, so we don't need insight into his suffering. What we need is insight into getting him out of his suffering. Mm -hmm. Right, so trying to bring him to the present moment? All right, I'm hearing you. Let's go, girl. You're on the way. You're on the roll. Let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and trying to um, get him live in the present moment and probably helping him to see how he is creating his own hell. Ah, um, uh, but it's better to see how we create our own hell when we're out of the hell. When we're in our own hell, it's really hard to see how we created it. Right. We have to kind of see it from the outside or afterwards. Okay, that's an interesting perspective, because in psychology, we always, it's kind of like a safeguarding thing. It's like telling you, <laughs> this is what you're doing. So these are the options that you can take. And there is... Right, but, yeah. all, but here's, here's the secret then of applying this that we're talking about back to the practice of Anapanasati, the mm -hmm. way that the suttas have been laid out is that if we could get ourselves into a state of satisfaction and separating ourselves from the hindrances, then when they arise again, we can catch them much easier. That once we're in hindrance, it's hard to get out of it. But once we're out of it, it's easy to stay out of it because we can see it easier. Right. 
Okay, so if, 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 if that's the case then with one's individual practice, now the psychotherapist with good skill can actually manipulate that with the client. Right, so I can okay. get and that's and, All right, so now we go to the next level. We've gone through Karuna and uh, Moody, excuse me, Meta and Karuna. Let's now go up to the level of um, uh, Mudita. And Mudita is normally defined as sympathetic joy. So when you use the word empathetic, I like that word because, better than compassion because empathizing is actually sympathizing with someone, but you don't have to play the same note. You can get into harmony with them. Right. So basically what this means is, is that you're going to look for a way to cheer them up, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. pace them out of where they are and lead them into a little joke. Get them to smile a little bit. Make sure that you're also smiling because a smile itself is actually the sympathetic joy. I mean, we've already talked about that if one person is angry, everybody in the room is angry. If someone at a funeral gets really sighed and starts crying, the whole crowd is going to break out. Okay. <laughs> um, if one teenage girl uh, uh, hears a loud noise and freaks out of her skin, everybody's going to get freaked out. That's mm -hmm. just human nature, and that human nature has got a very well-known history and a label called the herding instinct. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now that you know that, you can use that herding instinct. And in the, uh, in the poly, we would call that herding instinct, not in the sense of the fact that, that herds always collect together for safety. And that there are many disadvantages for herding, including that we get into the herd when that's not really where we want to go. But we join the herd for safety. Mm -hmm. An example of that is when the kid at school does what he's told to do. <laughs> Except that none of those kids really want to do what they're told to do. They all want to go out and play, but no one's a sm smart enough to recognize. They can just go. Until the shoulds and the coulds come in. Yeah, the shoulds and the coulds and the rules and all of that stuff that is we call the herding instinct. Right. The shoulds and the coulds and the would-haves and you've got to do it my way and I'm going to beat your ass if you don't. All of that is that herding instinct. It's dangerous to leave the herd. There are lions and tigers out there just beyond the backside of the, uh, of the wildebeest who is outside the herd. And so yeah. that, that wildebeest is going to run straight into that herd and get as deep into the middle of it as he can. <laughs> his own protection. All right. So this is how humans operate. Which means if, if you present yourself as a refuge from their bad feelings in your joy, they will join you. You yeah. just may take a little while. Right. The question is, can you keep your joy going long enough for their, um, <clears throat> let us say, um, victim's position 
to not to start losing his hold over them. That in fact, you can start making jokes about the situation. Mm -hmm. I learned one. And once people understand the, uh, the way that it's used, it's, it's generally a hilarious point, and it really breaks all up the tension. And that is the little expression, ain't it awful? <laughs> okay. So when one of these guys comes up to you and starts giving you the sob story about how things, how bad they are, you can come back with a great big smile on your face, grin, look them in the face, look them in the eye and say, yeah, that's awful. <laughs> and, and you might be able to get a, a click of insight from, from them yeah and so this is a way of let's use our wisdom and our knowledge of uh, instinctual behavior so that the object of our compassion is actually going to get someplace right and it can happen within 30 seconds to a minute. And we can apply this, and it, and it works generally every time. Sometimes it takes a little while. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a really clear example of that. Last night, Tam left her shoes on the tape, and I, and I picked up one and threw it where the other shoes are, but it missed it. It went down the stairs. But I could still see it because it was on the top stair. So I said, okay, the other one, I'll throw that so that the two shoes will be together. <laughs> that one bounced down the stairs over the balcony behind a curtain, and it is lost to view. <laughs> 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 and I have apologized to Tam at least a dozen times, including today, because every time that I apologized would bring her a little closer to it, but today I know that I finally got through to it, that she finally fully is saying that that was a really <laughs> stupid thing to do. And I apologize and everything is clear between us now. So it may take a while for you to do this kind of stuff, to pull someone out of their anger at you. And in fact, that's possibly the hardest one to do is when they're actually pissed off at you. Yeah. And they wanna and they wanna hang on to that pistol yeah. video. <laughs> it's always funny, like they're trying to be mad, but there is nothing to be mad about. Like when you do not reciprocate. There's nothing I didn't hear the last. You said uh, like, nothing to be angry about. And then if somebody is angry at at you and you are not reciprocating up to his expectations, not retaliating enough. The person often gets confused as to what they are actually mad about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, people do get angry uh, and then they become confused. And here's the reason why. Everyone somewhere deep down inside kind of knows that anger is not appropriate. But there's another side in there that says that, well, yes, it is. I've seen anger work. Sometimes it's good. We can call it righteous anger. I can, in fact, get, the, get what I want when I throw a tantrum. It happened once. I did get my way when I was three years old. I'm sure I can make it work again is kind of the mentality, you see. And so, so we, we kind of believe then that our, it's okay for us to be angry because the the outcome that we're looking for will, in fact, be promoted if I behave angrily about it. 
I mean, isn't that the normal reason why a lot of people do get angry is because they're trying to use it to their advantage. So in a way, it's actually a little bit bigger than it would be ordinary otherwise. So that's one of the ways that we are grandiose. Mm -hmm. And let's stop and think about that for a second. The human being in our English language in general, no language, is a, an emotional language. The language that we have is a, is a language of concepts and ideas and things and nouns. Mm-hmm. And, our, and our verb system is a little bit uh, um, subordinate to that. But, uh, uh, and the reason for that is because we keep taking nouns and making them into verbs. Yeah. Like the Christians don't Jesus hard enough. that's a verb now (laughs) okay so the but the point is is that our language even though um uh the the words of verbs and process and predications and all of that is weak our emotional language is really weak and we don't have very good words to describe things right uh and so what we do instead is we try to use the same words or a few words and put them on a scale of escalation mm-hmm. so that we begin to escalate uh, the words that we're using and the expressions that we're using to try to prove to people just how angry I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In other words, we don't have the language to say, I'm at a level 10 of anger right now. Thank you very <laughs> much go away or i'll kill you <laughs> we can't we don't have that capability of speak in fact when we're angry we can't even express how angry we are because that part of the mind has been turned off all we just is just enveloped or consumed with it and because of that then we get the idea that it must be okay to feel this way i should be able to get at least something done with all of this excess energy and that's something that even people, when they've been meditating for years, they will still fall into that idea that my anger is okay because of this, that, or the other thing. But once we come to fully figure out that under no case, under no circumstances, and in no possible way is anger of any beneficial value, it is always 100% a hell state. Mm-hmm. That's it. It is not of any value. Once we come to understand that, now it's actually a lot easier to begin to deal with our own anger as well as we can get to begin to deal with other people's anger also because we have 100% firm understanding that this has no advantage. There is no advantage to being angry, to feeling anger. But in fact, in many cases, it's actually unhealthy to be angry. Yeah, so you would say the catch is to see all of these mental fabrications in oneself and others? That's the thing? Well, you can actually use other people as a mirror to see yourself. You can go and you can see other people's anger and you can say, ha, I do that. Or, ha, I used to do that. I see where he is. I know how he feels. 
But now we're doing it from a wake up from a knowledge position. Mm -hmm. We know this is wisdom that we do sometimes feel like that. And in fact, that's a way of actually having empathy for someone whose anger is because we know his anger. That we have been there. Pardon? But that's temporary, right? Well, if we can say been there, done that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's better than say yeah I do that too right and so coming to that state of I am I am determined not to get angry mm-hmm. okay that's a kind of a determination and in fact we can do that with any of the emotions but anger is a good one because generally when it comes it's so um, let us say strong and inviting that uh, it sometimes is is overwhelming. It's so big. Yeah. That it's hard to miss. Yeah. And so it's a good test. Absolutely. So, well, the, the point is how fast can we catch the anger? Well, we can do this with any anything. Like... <laughs> um, An example was would be that all of a sudden the laptop, all of a sudden the laptop or the cell phone just dies and Mm -hmm. we piddle with it for a while, just long enough to realize this thing really is dead. It's busted. (laughs) Maybe maybe you can see the hole in the screen or whatever it is, but you know that this thing is not going to power up. Okay, how long are we going to feel bad? Before we wake up, I am not this laptop. I am not this cell phone. I can just go get another one. Never mind. It's no big deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in that regard, we can actually um, get over our, our losses. Because that's, in fact, what happens when we get angry is, is that it's a fear of loss. I've got to protect this or I will lose it and then I'll feel bad. Therefore, my anger is trying to preserve something that I hold dear. Right. Okay, so if we begin to recognize that part of the feeling component before the anger actually arises, then we can do something about it. That's really fast. Mm -hmm. Most people can't do that. So basically then what happens with a lot of people is... um, because people are like this. This guy barks, rap, rap. and so this one barks, rap, rap, rap. Mm-hmm. and so this guy barks. Rap, 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 rap. Now, how long is it going to take you as one of these guys to figure out, hey, wait a minute, I'm angry and I'm barking? <laughs> yeah. How long does it take for us to figure out that I am actually intentionally trying to harm someone who is, in fact, completely cooperating with me, but trying by trying to harm me right back again with verbal daggers. Mm-hmm. How long did it take for us to wake up? Because when we do wake up, then the fight's over. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the, the, the wife or the husband will wake up, and the husband will wake up long enough to realize this is not working, And he walks out and he slams the door like that's the last arguable thing he has to say. The last violent outburst is the slam of the door. But that's a whole lot more healthy than him continuing just to argue and argue on. Or maybe instead of slamming the door, he picks up a hammer 
<laughs> okay, so the question is always about how soon are we going to wake up? Yeah. And that's true not just with anger, but it's with any of the feelings. Mm-hmm. But when we're anger, we're in danger of causing great harm. And so this is a time when we really do need to wake up. And yeah. so having the intention that I'm going to wake up before I, and when I do wake up, I'm going to shut my mouth. Yep. I might have let one thing out, like, ah! And then I recognize that, wait a minute, I'm going to shut up. <laughs> or it might be, ah, 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 and, then, ah, and then we wait, and then we know it. Like after the second time we say something, and then we recognize, wait a minute, this is not who I am. This is not what I want to be. This is a feeling that I don't invite, and I certainly don't want to spread this all over somebody else, because they're only going to do is spread it right back all over me. Uh-huh. So somewhere great. along the way, we figure out that we're angry. That's the key. Mm-hmm. How soon can you do that? Mm-hmm. Because if you could do it before your first outburst, that's marvelous to keep it on the inside. Because if and now many people say, what do you mean? You want me to suppress it? The answer is, if you had a choice between suppressing your anger or spreading it all over the place. Uh-huh. If you had the choice between putting the match out or burning the building down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, I, the issue I, of suppression is not really the issue. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So uh, what I uh, noticed is that as soon as you start investigating and you see it, it kind of doesn't have to be suppression. It automatically kind of goes down. So that's a good thing. Yeah. You're, you're, you're a whole sentence ahead of me. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's exactly you're correct. Great guilt. Thank you. I, I, I didn't catch that last. I have been doing great with guilt. You know, I told you about my guilt issues. Like, I, I take a lot of guilt trips. But reasoning and seeing things for what they are has helped me a lot. Actually, that's another one that can be worked with exactly the same as the anger. Mm-hmm. In the sense of how long are you going to feel guilty before you wake up to it? Yeah. Because once you say, wait a minute, I'm just making myself feel bad mm-hmm. because I'm not following my own rules. Yeah. Well, ki- kids are kids learn to feel guilty. That's actually one of the tools that parents learn to use on a kid is make the pe- kid feel guilty. Yeah. You do not have to feel guilty. You do not have to feel angry. Those are actually just old habits. Yeah. But when you can wake up to those habits, you could change them. Yeah. And 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 with the the anger, the first thing to do is to shut your mouth. Be quiet. Don't say anything because Mm -hmm. that's the most dangerous. Guilt is not quite as bad in in regard. Actually, I would say that guilt is one of those things that's a little bit more difficult to spread. Yeah, it's more like an internal thing. Yeah. Um, 
I would say that it's because it's not really a basic emotion. Yeah. That we actually have to talk ourselves into, because basically what I was saying is, is it, it really what it is, is, is that we're trying, the parent ego state is trying to make the child ego state feel bad. Yeah. Feel guilty because he's not following the rules, he's not following the internal order. Okay? Negative reinforcement, right? And so because it's all internal, that's a little bit different than dealing with other people because mostly what people have to say has to do with the outside world. There's always that third party out there that they can blame. When we feel guilty, it's hard to blame someone for us feeling guilty. It's sort of like we want to hide or be shy or uh, we will actually go in denial. It's, in, mm -hmm. it's kind of a state of denial. Uh, so uh, it's not as, as strong as an issue. In other words, if you're sitting there feeling guilty, you're not going to get very many girlfriends uh, who are full of compassion to come up and pat you on the shoulder and say they're there now. <laughs> yeah. That just doesn't happen when we feel guilty. People just don't even know what's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's get back to this quality of it doesn't really matter even if you can with your um budding wisdom of a psychotherapist can even catch other clients or whatever in the state of guilt you would still behave with them the way that you would with someone who is angry or who is playing victim or all of those other things is with this mudita Mudita is actually the uh, the method of dealing with all the issues of Corona. And that, and that is you've got to get your own mind out of the mess, whatever that mess is, so that you can then invite the other person out of it. Mm. Yeah, that's, this and, teaching and that's, has a quality of like overflowing. It's like not actively teaching, rather just sharing, which is amazing. That's a really excellent way of putting it. That, and in fact, when I hear people practice metta the way that I uh, that that it's often taught, it sounds like that somebody is trying to uh, let us spray spread water on plants from a basically empty bucket. Is after all the water, and so we're just trying to scrape the bottom to get some more water so that we can throw it out. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that the bucket is empty. Mm -hmm. So when the students, and and especially in a um a retreat setting, where they sit down to practice metta, they've got no joy, they've got no friendship, they've got nothing but their own misery because they're, you know, they're feeling robbed from, uh. Uh, no cell phone, no book, no uh, uh, laptop, uh, no yeah. friendship. They're in silence now. Yeah. Okay. And because of that, they do not have yet developed any joy on their own at all. Mm -hmm. And so now they're trying to practice metta, which is spreading joy that they don't <laughs> have any of. And so that means it winds up being merely an empty hope for a better future. But real metta is very much like having a bucket that's sitting under a tap. 
And whether that tap is leaking, whether it's dripping, whether it is full on and just gushing water, it doesn't matter. What does matter is, is that over time, over maybe a short time, that bucket's going to get full up. And when it does, it overflows. Mm -hmm. That's the way of doing mudita, is when you overflow with joy. Yeah. Right. That we don't have to do a meta meditation uh, to try to bring it up so that we can spread it out. That mm -hmm. when it is there, it just automatically spreads around. Right. That's again like the goal oriented approach and the process oriented approach thing. Right. And the process is you're going to be full of it. Joy, that yep. is. <laughs> and when you're full of joy then it naturally spreads yeah whenever you think about it and you and you think about being joyful and you are joyful then everybody on the uh the skype call with you smiles too yep <laughs> see i put this stuff into into service i'm watching the students if i can't get them any mudita then i'm not really giving them any dharma at all Mm-hmm. Here, watch it. Let's do it this way. There's so many problems out there. You you gotta learn to escape. <laughs> yeah, there is sad sack dhamma, but we're not going to practice sad sack dhamma. We're going to be overflowing with the joy, overflowing with mudita. Mm -hmm. This is the way that we begin to deal with other people. And guess what? Your whole life becomes delightful because everyone you come in contact with within a minute or so becomes delighted. Yeah. But again, when we say uh, we talk about like joy and stuff, I am um, guessing that we are not excluding skepticism or cynicism or any of that. Um. I would put both skepticism and cynicism, but I'll have to, I'll, we'll have to dust off cynicism just a little bit, but first we'll do with skepticism. Skepticism is part of wisdom. Skepticism is keep looking, keep watching. Don't take their word for it. It's become a dirty word, I think. Pardon? Yeah. <laughs> it's become a dirty word. What, it's you, well, it's you, yeah, it's become Eurosceptic, uh, climate skeptic. If you're one of those, then you're automatically bad. Yeah, it's just a massive overgeneralization. Okay, massive what over if I'm a skeptic skeptic? How does that feel? <laughs> well, I, I would class myself as a skeptic, and I see it as a good thing. Yes, it really is. Yes, let's keep investigating. Let's yeah. not come to any conclusions. Yeah. Because conclusions, yeah. I mean, a Nietzsche, Watcha Sankara, everything changes. If we come to a conclusion, we'll probably attach to our conclusion. And to now we're no longer in the real world because things have moved on, except yeah. our conclusion. So we need to stop grasping and clinging to conclusions about we think we know how things are. And let's just keep investigating it, keep looking at it, keep making sure. And so... Um, the problem with the word cynic is, is that the cynic expects the skepticism 
to prove everything is wrong. Right. Okay, but skepticism I like. But cynicism, uh, let us put it this way. You know of the word paranoid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very well-defined psychologists know all about it. And in fact, it, that word belongs to them. A paranoid <laughs> is one who uh, believes that basically the whole world is out to get them. But generally, what they don't realize is that they give the world a good reason for it. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes. But the other yes. side of that, then, the cyn- uh, maybe not the cynic, but the skeptic can still remain skeptical, but he could become a metanoid. Mm-hmm. Metanoid. What is a metanoid? It's the one who believes that everything is okay, that things are going to work out, that the world is mm-hmm. not against me. In fact, the world is in my favor. everything's going to be all right okay Mm -hmm. but we have to keep it verifying that yeah so in this context that um i would like to ask you sometimes when we talk about all of this like the teaching that we are talking about gives us like immense uh responsibility like control of our lives right but when actually you say- you're right it does it does a whole lot more than you think this is in fact what bhikkhu buddhadasa and achan po really start hammering home later in one's progress and that is duty to the dharma and it really works like this if you actually wake up to the reality of the situation then you owe that reality to recognize the reality is existing in the sense of we now, because we can see how things are, we have to stop pretending that they are otherwise. We have a duty. But in the reality is we've had that duty all along, but people haven't been able to see it. But we do have a duty to reality. And every time we don't keep our duty, we suffer. But when we become very steeped in the Dhamma and understand it, we recognize that we do have a duty. Sometimes that duty is broad in the sense that if you can see what the truth is about you, then you have responsibility for you. But if you can see what other people are doing to harm themselves, then you are almost obligated by the Dhamma to do something about it. Okay. In fact, it's that duty for the Dharma that I have that puts these Scott calls on. Right. I have a duty to spread this stuff. This to this 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 Dharma that I have been given graciously from the Buddha all the way through all of the groups, down through Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and Achan Po down to me. It's such a marvelous gift. I have to keep giving it out. It's part of my nature now. Pardon? And that is the best act of compassion, right? One more time. Let me that try is, <laughs> sorry, that is the best act of compassion, right? Yes, that is the very best gift that you can give is the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. And we, when we have it, it's almost like we are obligated to live it. 
And because we're obligated to living it, our living it itself is sharing it with others. Yeah. So that we begin to rub off on other people and that's to their benefit and that they know it. Yeah. Okay, so this is our obligation to the Dhamma and we are obligated That doesn't mean we got to go fix everything we see wrong because that's what old kind of compassion is. We can't fix anything. But what we are obligated to do is to share our joy. Mm-hmm. Right. To share the joy. That's what, and that's what real compassion is anyway, is to help people out of their woeful state into the state of joy. How do you have answers to all my questions? How do I what? How do you have answers to all my questions? And they all perfectly make sense. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's another answer I was expecting. <laughs> uh, another way of saying it is it's just psychology, duh. <laughs> I mean, aren't we all humans? I mean, everybody's the same. We're all humans. All you have to do is figure one human out and you've got them all figured out. Yeah. Exactly. And you've got a perfect example to work on. Mm-hmm. Everybody has. <laughs> Everybody does, right? Everybody's the emperor of their own pile of dirt. Yep. Yeah. Robert, you were going to say something. Well, I was, there's three things. I'm not convinced that everyone's an emperor of their own pile of dirt. I'm not convinced everyone actually qualifies as human. And the, <laughs> the third thing is that where the self the self, it's just struck me that everything you were saying regarding the Dharma as being essentially reality, natural law, etc., etc. The sense of self is, is does that partly come as wanting to be separate from that, to in some way be Yes. Uh, less and safe from it. Right. That was about what I was about to say is, is that sometimes when we feel unsafe, then our safety comes in withdrawal from that which is perceived unsafe, where in fact, that's a delusion. The feeling of being unsafe was a delusion, and so was the danger. And what we were feeling danger, in fact, was not dangerous. But we did come out of really dangerous times. Things, guys, about 600,000 years ago were not safe. And now most people don't feel safe when most of the time we are safe. And people will then say, yeah, but wait a minute. I'm a female in Sweden and I can get my house broken into. Or I'm a black man with a, a, a white cop's um, knee on my neck. 
or I'm a this, that, and the other thing, and the world really is a dangerous place. And yes, we it is dangerous from time to time. But part of the thing that makes the world dangerous is because a whole lot of people think so. Hmm. If that cop didn't think that that black man who was on the ground was not dangerous, he wouldn't have his foot or his uh, knee in the guy's neck. The problem is incorrectly perceived danger. When things are not really as dangerous as we believe that we grandiositize our feelings, especially the feeling of fear. We make our fear bigger than it really is. And, and, and that's what the news is relying on, banning all of that up. Huh? And it's manufactured, manufactured yeah. bad feelings. And that's who we are. That's the self. That's the personality. And what we feel to, fail to understand at the point that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and, and the Buddha are making is, is that, no, that's not really who you are. That's just a set of patterns and sankaras that were based upon your past and a bunch of old um, habits. But that who you are now can be changed. That you can change. And in fact, every moment you have a choice of are you going to change and be in the present moment and be who you want to be? Are you going to be asleep and therefore fall back into the personality? Who we thought we were. And when and we fall into the personality, then that's exactly who we are. We're, we are that personality. But the, uh, the joy of understanding the Dhamma is, is that I am not stuck to that personality. I can get out of it every time I remember to get out of it. And, and that would also be the importance of skepticism. Precisely so. Exactly. You nailed it. Yeah. be very skeptical about who I think I am. But as soon as you stop being skeptical, you then limit yourself. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And all the manipulation takes place. Pardon? And all the manipulation takes place, right? People yeah. start manipulating you. Because you set yourself up to be vulnerable to it, would you think? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. You're accepting, which is society. It wants you to accept. It wants mm-hmm. you to be in these... Uh, in these uh, in groups, which is again what the news is doing, helping fuels to separate, uh, it, it herds us together with fear, so that we've got something to protect. So the group is a larger self; it's a self of itself. <laughs> <laughs> Levels of identification. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so that's what we learn to do then is to stop identifying with things Mm -hmm. because when we identify with them, they'll be painful. Yeah. Everything goes up and down. Everything is subject to change. And that means everything is subject to go down when we want it to go up or everything goes up when we want it to go down. And that's suffering because of the uh, the attachment 
to it. An example of a, uh, that would be a political party. If that political party suffers and I'm attached to that political party, then I'm going to suffer too. <laughs> yeah. And so everything that uh, that happens bad to a political party, and believe me, 10, if not 100 things every day happens bad to one political party. I know which one. <laughs> in fact, both of them are just, you know, down all the time. There's something wrong with them all the time. They're always pleading for more money and more money and more money. Boy, you wouldn't believe how bad things were today. Look what they did to me. Okay. And so this is the whole world of politics. And everybody winds up feeling bad when they attach to this. And so every time that you recognize it, you feel bad because of what you've seen on television. You can say, wait a minute, <laughs> I see you. <laughs> that is not who I am. I do not feel that way because it's on TV. That they, the TV people put this on the TV just to make me feel bad. That's their business. They're in the business yeah. of sensationalization. So this is, in fact, the reason to be skeptic is because you're being lied to a lot. You were lied to when you were a kid. You're lied to when you were in school and you're lied to in school now. And you're lied to when you watch TV and you're lied to when you walk into church and you lie to when you walk into the police station and you're lied to when you walk into a business. Mm -hmm. OK, I think I mentioned all four of them there. We're lied to constantly. Business would not survive if every salesman told only the truth. Yeah. Yeah, entire marketing, uh, advertisement, all of that. Uh -huh. <laughs> Surviving on manipulation. All based upon psychological manipulation, exactly. Oh, by the way, you would like this. There is a four-part series. Each one of them lasts, I think, four hours or something. I'm not sure. Maybe the whole thing is four hours. It's called The Century of the Self. Do you know about this? On YouTube. Yes, it's on YouTube. So you can find it by just uh, looking on YouTube for Century of the Self. It's basically the story of Edward Bernays, who was a, uh, the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Right. And so Edward, Edward Bernays took all of the stuff that Sigmund Freud was figuring out about psychology and all of that and turned it into industrial psychology so that big money could learn to manipulate their employees or manipulate their customers. And that is where marketing and a whole bunch of stuff has come from. It came from Edward Bernays. Okay. And well. one of the first things that he did is quite remarkable. He got women to smoke. <laughs> How did he do that? Because at the turn of the century, smoking was a big no-no and only men did it. And women were not, I mean, it wasn't feminine. It stunk. No man wants to be close to a woman. You know the whole show. Okay, so how did Edward Bernays get women to smoke to the point that they've actually got cigarettes like Moore's and Virginia Slim's and I don't know what all kind of brands? Huh? This is how he did that. At the time of the suffrage movement in the United States, most specifically in New York, where women were on the march to try to get the vote, he hired debutantes and well-known personalities and put them at the front of the parade smoking cigarettes, which meant that now smoking is being tied to 
the suffrage movement and women's liberation and it's been stuck there ever since. Virginia Slim is a feminist cigarette. That's <laughs> where it got started and it happened exactly a hundred years ago. Right. And this and is the story, the, the century of the self is actually the story of the human self being completely manipulated by big business. Yeah. And when you see that, you'll say, my goodness, Damaranto has been right. That <laughs> world out there really <laughs> does suck big time. <laughs> you don't have to go that far. The fact that we have different selves, like we cannot really know how we are. It's a different self to everybody else. Like you're going to perceive me as something and somebody else is going to. And based on all of your perceptions and uh, errors in your perception, I built my perception of self. So it's full of errors and so easy to manipulate. Sure. <laughs> I, I know. Yes, it, it is. Um... The perception of the self is manipulated. Yeah. Like you cannot be who you are. Who mm -hmm. you are has this product. Right. If we you don't have this product, you're not good media. enough to be who you think you are. This is the kind of thing that, um, and they, this is kind of how I got started. One of the things they recognized was is that if you, uh, th this is actually, this is crazy. They thought that if you painted the walls of a factory green, that the productivity would go up. Yeah, that makes sense. Because uh -huh. the they actually did that. So they went around many places painting the walls green. And what was really going on is the workers felt a little better off because the factory owners cared enough about them to actually paint these dirty walls. Which yeah. meant that the productivity went back down and painting the walls green a second time didn't help. <laughs> and so they tried blue and they found out that blue had exactly the same effect as painting the walls green did. And then they tried it with yellow and then they say, wait a minute, it's not the color that we're painting the wall. It's the fact that we're out there painting for them that gets the productivity okay. to go up a little bit for a little while. That that is uh, that can be the basis of a very famous uh, organization psychology theory called the two factor theory, which say, it says we have like hygiene factors and maintenance factors. Mm -hmm. So these would like painting the walls, decorating the places. This all of these would be the um, hygiene factors, I think, or maybe it may be the other way around. And uh, there are certain other factors like um, promotions, responsibilities, and um, engagement in work, which is like okay, another a lot of that had to do from two different sources. One was workers' rights, unions, getting things done. But the yeah. other side of it, which basically has even more money in it, is the industrial manipulation of the people to get them to be more productive by giving them things that really don't matter that much. Right. And so it's a cost-benefit analysis. But sometimes the unions say, no, we're going to have to have safe working environment here. And that the, uh, those laws 
go up and down depending upon, uh, or the, let us say the enforcement of those laws goes up and down depending upon the political party and in, in, uh, in power and other things like that. But one of the things that we can see over a long period of time that business wins, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And that's just the fact of life in the world out there. But that does not mean that you have to suffer because the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. You can teach the poor how to be happy. Money can buy happiness. It may, in fact, be better to teach the rich people to be happy so they wouldn't be so greedy and exploited. (laughs) (laughs) And there's not nearly so many of them. (laughs) What was that, Robert? So many of them are miserable. Yes. Most of them. I never had a rich man that was happy. I've met one. (laughs) (laughs) Well... (laughs) <laughs> the exception, I guess, proves the rule. Well, but in that case, it could be possible. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Were they happy? They're very generous. <laughs> Actually, generosity from the rich is going in the right direction. Because, in fact, it's the turnaround. Because most people think I'm going to be happy if I get all the money. Once they get all the money and they're still not happy, and then they say, wait a minute, maybe when I start giving it away, I'll be happy. And that's yeah. where philanthropy comes from. This is mm-hmm. built from Bill Gates to Rockefeller Foundation, uh, Ford Foundation. Um, there's there's some in England also, but I don't know what's happening in England. But I do know in America, I can name you a dozen foundations that came from really rich, old, greedy, dirty-minded old men that decided that they would be better off if they gave their money away, and they did. Many of them sheltered it so that at least their kids couldn't get it and started a foundation that's still doing good things. Ford Foundation, Mellon Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, all of these organizations are still out there doing philanthropic work. Now we have new ones like Zuckerberg and Bates are beginning to become... Uh, generous and start giving their money away and so this is uh, it actually is we can talk about that in fact I just had a long conversation about generosity that generosity does breed gratitude and gratitude and generosity working together brings joy would you say uh, generosity is always accompanied by gratitude No, I would say generally when gratitude does not follow generosity, the generosity is wasted. Yeah, because sometimes generosity can be just a defense mechanism or just a modification of the belief system in karma. Yes, exactly. Murder someone, so I just donate a bunch of money and I expect... Exactly, like giving money to a beggar just to get get rid of him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's right. So that generosity is not actually generosity of the heart. It's, it's uh, go away, boy, you bother me, kind of giving him a tip to get him out. Uh, but when we practice real generosity, then we get 
the benefit of that generosity through gratitude because we give somebody something that they actually want, something they can really use and need. I've got several examples of that. One of them was is that my friend Damavitu, I gave him a, um, a fan, an electric fan, about two years ago or so. And uh, uh, he wasn't particularly grateful for it at all because he already had an electric fan. But a couple of months after I gave him that fan, the old one went kaput. <laughs> and, the next, and the next time I saw him, now the, gener- now the gratitude comes. He right. finally feels the gratitude for that fan because the old one broke. But uh, delayed gratification is still <laughs> marvelous. <laughs> yep. Or not gratification, but uh, gratitude is what I'm talking about. Different word there. So, uh, this is all uh, the concept of wrapped up with the Brahma Viharas. Gift giving, generosity, gratitude is really quite a lot about that issue of mudita, to be able to share joy through giving people something that you know will cheer them up. Right. And so when we gift give, we want to do it through wisdom to figure out something that this guy can really use. And then when we give it to him, he, he will appreciate it. And so, uh, and then everybody feels good. But if you gave a donation, even if it were a big amount of money from, uh, from let us say, uh, from the rich guy, if he gives it to an NGO, then the person at the NGO is going to open that envelope, see that it's a check, put it in the drawer with the other checks. It goes to the bank and she opens the next envelope and she gets no benefit. If you give yeah. money to an NGO, almost always the money goes for the operation of the NGO, not for the actual thing that needed to be done. So what I recommend students do is, is that they actually find someone who can benefit from your generosity and then give it to them. I don't know about Bristol, but probably in London and for sure in New York, there are people out on the street. So when you see people just like in India, you know, and uh, in America, They've got a really dirty kind of idea about it in the sense that, oh, he's just a panhandler. Oh, he doesn't need the money. He's just a fake or uh, don't give him that money. No, it's actually if he is um, out there wanting money and you give it to him and he shows gratitude for it, that's as far as it goes. We do not have to go check his bank account. But you can generally, if you're out on the street, you can see the same people showing up. And so if there's a charlatan, you probably won't see him often, but you'll see the same beggars over and over and over again. There they are. They've got no place to go. The other side of it is... I'm sorry, Robert? I was just going to say, the other other thing that happens is is people see them and they think that they're just going to spend the money on drugs and alcohol. Yeah, I was going to say that. Well, they probably are. But if you're giving them, they're addicts, and if you give them the money for the drugs, at least then they're not stealing the money. Right. 
there's another way of doing it. And this is where uh, Willie has come to. Willie started giving quarters. Now what he does is that he goes to the donut shop and gets a cup of coffee yeah. and a donut and takes that to him. And that's much closer to $5 than it is a quarter. Yeah. And then yeah. they really appreciate that. A little meal is goes a really long way. And so that's really where generosity and gratitude meet out on the street, is to give somebody something to eat. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and so this is a way that we can start looking for gratitude and practicing gratitude so that we get actually we want to develop it as a skill mm -hmm. and when that skill is fully developed along with the rest of our dhamma, dhamma then we become generous with giving the dhamma we got really nothing left to do with life except just to be happy and generous and spread joy yeah right Makes perfect sense. <laughs> it does. The Buddha. I don't. I don't see any barnacles on Buddha's boat. <laughs> I'm such a it is known. It is known to be spotless. Or another one is like a garment that has no tears or rents. Uh -huh. It has got no holes in it anywhere. That it perfectly fits everywhere. The Dhamma yeah. has. No rents, no tears, no no cut holes in it, no patches. That everything just fits so perfectly together that we bring it. Why can't people figure that out? Why do we have to live in a world <laughs> the way that we do when, in fact, there's another way of living? Even sometimes they don't have to figure it out, but it's just sometimes they have so much of resistance that they don't want to see it they'd rather be in denial and be dissatisfied than to just accept it or it's sometimes hard to recognize that the old way that we've been doing it really is suffering we've gotten so used to it and we're so asleep we just go along to get along without really seeing that wait a minute this whole system is is somehow busted yeah, that somehow goes back to the whole question of identity because it's a major threat to how you have been and suddenly... Exactly so. It and really habits. is. The habits of who I am, the habits of identifying with a particular church, a particular country, a particular uh, religion, a particular um, uh, political party, a particular family, this is who we are without ever looking at the fact that holding those kind of views is actually quite painful. It is hard to endure that, but they endure it anyway, but they don't recognize that it is in fact hard to do. They just say, well, that's the way it is. Without recognizing it, wait a minute. <laughs> the way it is right now is that you're under, you're under the thumb of someone called the government or the big business or the society or whatever it is and that if you um, sort of wiggle around a bit you can escape <laughs> and then you don't have to be under the thumb of the society the mundane stuff and so people get content with the way things are thinking 
And in fact, they have been promised and they believe the lie of the promise that things will get better. So there's always hope springs eternal for a better tomorrow. And that's a lie. Things are already as good as they're ever going to get. And the only thing that needs an adjustment is the attitude about it. <laughs> Again, plagiarism, positive psychology stole that bit. What was that? Positive that psychology stole that bit from Buddha. You know how they're always positive psychology? Have you heard about it? No, say the word again. I haven't figured out what you said yet. What positive kind of psychology? psychology. Positive. Positive, positive psychology. Uh huh. Yeah. So they're basically trying to say the same thing, but mm -hmm. people just interpret it in a very wrong way sometimes. Just everything doesn't have to be okay all the time. Well, when I studied psychology, all we had was clinical. We did not have counseling psychology. It didn't even exist. Right. Which means that at that point in time, the only thing that psychologists could see is you're either really mentally ill or you're double really mentally ill. And that's the only thing that they could ever see at that time. They didn't <laughs> understand that there are normal people that have normal problems that they, that they don't need to have these problems. They could be normal people without problems. Yeah. And so that's where counseling and now um, uh, positive psychology mentality is coming to. And that's just a graduation of psychotherapy. It's great. I mean, it's learning. Yeah. I think they've been, they've been reading too many Buddhist books. <laughs> Absolutely. I think so, too. They're literally saying the same thing. It's just in a more well, there's, there's all we got. The only thing that we've got as, a, as an example is the human being. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so naturally, we're going to wind up seeing the same thing. We're just going to be, you know, picking and pointing and at, at different things at different rates and different times. But we've mm -hmm. all only got this one issue, and that is being human. Mm-hmm. And that was the issue that the Buddha had. That's the issue that uh, uh, the Christians had 2,000 years ago. That's what the problem that the Catholic Church had in the Middle Ages. That's what Muhammad had in the 6th century AD. That's what modern psychology has. Yep. But along the way, they've learned more and more about how to manipulate other people. That's the real danger is, is that <laughs> Things are a whole lot worse in this last century than they have before that because big business has learned enough about psychology. So now big business and and uh, the wealthy have learned to really manipulate the idiots. Yeah. If you're talking, talking uh, about the uh, psychology, uh, mm -hmm. you were talking about Century of the Self. Well, that's a documentary done by Adam Curtis, who's a, uh, an English documentary maker. He did another one called Hypernormalization. Oh. I didn't know about that one. Uh, which is, again, it's taking the theme further. So it's, 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 it's looking at the advertising industry. And uh, mm. I think you'll find it is long. It's long, but I think you'll find it very, very... It sounds really interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a look at that. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Because basically what we're looking at is, is that you see, psychology, like everything, has two sides to it. Like, for instance, nuclear. That has bombs on one side and weapons on one side, and it has medical science on the other. Okay, psychology has that same duality in the sense of, yes, we do have therapeutic psychology, which is the art of helping an individual come out of their own misery and their own crap. But on the other hand, we have this industrial psychology monster mm-hmm. that is manipulating and is manipulating mass numbers of people. So it seems like everything, like there is no bad or good. It, it doesn't make sense to classify anything as bad or good. So is it that what is meant when people try to say no judgment? That's worth another talk. <laughs> yeah. That whole topic there is worth a whole nother talk about um, that, in fact, the basic opening to it would be the story of Adam and Eve, eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And mm-hmm. that's why they got thrown out of paradise. The eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil means that we have to deal with the results of our judgment saying this was good and this is bad. Mm-hmm. If we don't go around saying that this paradise is this is good and this is bad, it remains paradise. But if I go around saying that tree in paradise is nice, but this paradise tree, that's got to be removed. It's got a bug. And the next thing you know, we wind up paving our own paradise. And I'm not sure whether we even know how to put up a parking lot or not. (laughs) But we destroy our paradise with making judgments. Yeah, right. That it gets quite detailed. uh, And so we can cover that at another time um, in in more detail. But yes, this is common human knowledge and is also manipulated Mm -hmm. by big business. That industrial psychology knows how to manipulate people to get them to judge things one way or the other or to manipulate the results of their judgment. And so this, so if people stop making judgments, so it's really hard to manipulate them. <laughs> yeah. Really hard to manipulate people who stay wise and look at what's going on and stop making choices about this, that, and the other thing. It's interesting to imagine how society would be if everybody acted in a very rational and followed the Dharma. <laughs> It would collapse. The economy would collapse. Well, yeah, but wouldn't that be marvelous if the economy did collapse? Who needs it? (laughs) Who needs all those airplanes in the air? Who needs all of those cars putting out pollution? Who needs these oil wells? Yeah, Yeah, the world is like... It's all a matter of greed. So long as each individual person has what they need and when they become satisfied with what they need, that's how humans could manage on this planet. So I'm not sure that an economy, because, you know, every economy has to do with gross national product, which yeah. means yeah. what we can produce. Well, darn it, we've been producing for 10,000 years, and look what has got us. The trouble mm-hmm. is... Maybe we don't need to produce so much. 
Maybe we can sit down and enjoy the production we've already done. <laughs> yeah. But here's Without the break. problem is, is that this is not going to ever be a, um, a super popular point because most of the media or the way of spreading this kind of good news is manipulated by the people who are trying to make a profit off of it. So the Dhamma doesn't spread very well in commercial circuits. Mm -hmm. But one by one, one person at a time, the, uh, the Dhamma is very much like the Marines. All we need is a few good people. We don't <laughs> need the whole crowd, just a few. We need just a few nobles here and there, and the world will be a much better place. Yeah. Just one noble at a time. We've had them all along for 2,500 years. They're not about to run out of fashion. <laughs> right. And so that's the way that we can look at spreading the Dhamma. If we can get one person interested in the Dhamma, that's the success we're looking for. Just one person at a time, and uh, the Dhamma will spread like that. The trick is, is getting it out. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa decided to do. Before that, it was kept kind of tight within the, within the Sangha, partly because of danger, partly for mm -hmm. other political reasons. But starting in the 1930s, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says, now is the time to let this really deep Dhamma out to the world, out to the public. He got into trouble for that with the Sangha. But he was exonerated, and the exoneration was that he's teaching the right thing to the wrong people. Rather than teaching the wrong Dhamma. No, he's teaching the right Dhamma, he's just teaching it to the wrong people. Who is he teaching it to? Anybody who will listen. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And so now, it's time to take it out of the Thai culture, because really, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and the Dhamma of the Buddha is firmly established in the Thai culture. Mm -hmm. And we have a few Westerners who kind of understand. We've got Robert Bucknell, we've got uh, Christopher Titnus, we've got Santicaro, we've got Damavitu, uh, and a few others that, um, that know and can spread this Dhamma from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. But the thing that I found quite, um, gosh, it was actually mind-blowing. When I got involved with the Laotian community of monks in the United States to find out that they too had nobility because they had no contact with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Then later I found the same thing in the Cambodian community and in the Burmese community that there is community of nobles within the Sangha from all of these countries, but they don't have one place back to because see in Thailand I could easily chase everything back to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa mm -hmm. but when I come across noble Lao who don't know anything about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa I've got to say wait a minute the Sangha is greater stronger more powerful and more noble than many of us give it credit for that nobility is well known and has been all along but it's been kept within the Sangha because that was basically what it was from the from the beginning. Generally, those people who really got what the Buddha was saying generally would join the Sangha. Because so the like Sangha a is a way of, this is the way out of societies. Come join us, let's go live in the woods together. 
sitting under a tree and enjoying our lives. Yeah. Well, that's that's good if you come from a culture that is already mostly outdoors, like living in India. But in Siberia, that's not an option. Yeah. <laughs> and also the whole idea of feeding the mendicants was very, very Indian. Mm-hmm. And it didn't fit when the Sangha or when the uh, Dhamma went to China. The Chinese monks had to start to learn to cultivate and to uh, grow crops because they're not going to get the support that they could have gotten in India. Right. And so uh, there, there are cultural changes and things like that. But basically the whole point of the Sangha was to give people a way out. Of, of just, you know, really getting out of the world completely. And it's been true all these many centuries since then. There's always a way out. Now I think that the way out is even more possible. People don't have to ordain as Buddhist monks or nuns in order to find a way out. Right. But that was just what the Buddha offered. But there's always, in fact, people would be following the Buddha uh, were not really in the Sangha. They already had a way out. Mm-hmm. And by um, this kind of getting a way out, you mean out of the mundane? Right. To stop living according to getting our pleasure from the world and start living according to the fact that we've already got all the pleasure we need. That's so good. Mm-hmm. I had this, uh, well, it would have been an insight, I suppose, the other day, and it just struck me, whacked me in the face, basically, that we've been, I, or society, have been brought up from the very, very beginning to look to the outside for our pleasure. Mm -hmm. Yes. Massive overstimulation from all possible sources. Mm-hmm. External mm-hmm. sources, all of them. It's mm-hmm. never just be happy. Oh, you've hurt your toe. Have a sweetie. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that reminds me of a fun thing. So when I was a kid, my parents used to do, being the typical Indian parents, they used to be like, it's just school life, study for your school life, and then you can party and have fun in your college. Uh, in, in name, your high- me a, name me a country where they don't do that to the kids. Oh, they do that? Okay. Sad. Sad, really sad. <laughs> you should I see what, thing, what um, Pink Floyd has to say about the British schools. Yeah. You've probably not heard of it. She hadn't heard the of wall, it. The wall. The wall. Another brick in the wall. And it starts okay. out, we don't need your education. And and the whole show is showing uh, kids in British school clothes on a conveyor belt. Yeah. That they become automated, okay? So this is actually quite real. The kids feel that way. They do. They do not feel like uh, um, that they're in charge of their lives. So we 
So the society and the way that we raise, raise our kids and educate our kids basically steals something deeply valuable. And that is the ability yeah. to enjoy our lives. Yeah. And yeah. so we kind of get stuck in grievance. Resentment. Mm -hmm. Resentment, grievance, and also guilt, rather than just making that change, flipping that coin, deciding that, no, I am not going to feel bad because I have been feeling bad. I'm going to choose now to feel the way I want to feel. And we make that choice thousands and thousands of times over and over and over again. And we can eventually come out of those old patterns that we have uh, dug in by doing it over and over again, thousands and thousands of times. So we actually have to balance that up with sati to keep remembering that this moment is good. This one's great. I like this one too. And we keep living our lives like that. And, and it's, it's so marvelously simple. It's such a simple concept. Yeah. But somehow or another, it really is hard to, uh, to do a 180 when we have such a huge ship of self. I mean, oil tankers, it takes them hours to get turned around. <laughs> A human being, it takes them sometimes years. <laughs> Absolutely. Or never. <laughs> right. If they don't ever turn the wheel, if they don't, <laughs> then they never will turn around. <laughs> exactly so. Well, guys, this has been a really delightful conversation. I've enjoyed it. Do either one of them have any new comments or new uh, uh, questions to ask? Um, I have loads, but I'm sure those yeah. are going to be very long. <laughs> yeah, Likewise. we've been at it almost two hours now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this, uh, Robert, what? Really, really nice to meet you, Debbie. It's Debbie, Same isn't it? Yeah, it is Debbie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if you ever fancy a trip out of Bristol, my daughter would love to meet you at some oh, time. That's or that's exactly come up to the kind of connections I would like to see. Uh, yes, he, he's got a daughter that I, I want you to meet. Oh, okay. How old is uh, she? She's 23. She's almost my age. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah I'd love uh, to meet her. Yeah, so we'll we'll be up in Bristol at some point. But once this uh, the whole COVID thing is, well, I don't know, it'll ever be sorted. But uh, hopefully, it'll settle down and people can start meeting each other again and having yeah. having uh, real relationships. Well, they can do it on Skype too. Um, that's they the can. joy of it. Now that you guys have already been on the same Skype call, that'll give you an uh, a method to where you can contact each other. You can just go right yeah. to this thing and... Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, I, I, I'm really keen on trying to get to people... Because we've got Danny in Bristol as well. Uh, and just get a few people, real people there, together. There, There is Matt in London. There is Patrick in London. There's Pradesh in London. I've got... You know, <laughs> I've got quite yeah. a few students around in that that neighborhood. It's, uh, 
Bristol's just down the road from me, you see. Oh, I'm often, up, I'm, I'm often up that way. I'll be up that way tonight. So it's uh, it's just great. It's, it's really good. It's really so, uh, sunny and warm out here. You can get, like, once all of this settle down, so you can just come here for a weekend and uh, visit all of these beautiful places here. It's oh, it's, 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 I, I love Bristol. It's a, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful city. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Love it. Excellent, guys. Well, I'm glad you've made this contact, and we'll see you both soon enough. Yeah, and I'll send a link to those other documentaries. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. Please. Yes, I would like that. Uh, there's two more I can think of that are of relevance. Okay, okay, we'll see you guys later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.